welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, go to PCAPaintEd.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all you non-members out there, sign up for our free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the Apple Store and Google Play. In today's podcast, we feature an episode from Ask a Painter Live with Nick Slavic. In this episode, Nick shares his exterior painting standard operating procedures. Good morning, everybody. I am Nick Slavic. I'm the proprietor of the Nick Slavic Painting and Restoration Company. We are streaming live to Facebook. We are also streaming live to Instagram from another camera over here. Um, What a beautiful day, people. We are in the swing of summer, and uh, it's been a crazy spring, crazy early summer with weather, hot, cold, rainy, windy, give or take. It's been uh, particularly wild in Minnesota. We're used to that sort of thing, but this year was even a little bit crazier. But um, this is the Ask a Painter live show. Uh, I have uh, been doing the show for over five years now. It's a weekly show where I basically share the life of a paint business entrepreneur and a master craft person. And uh, something that I love very much is this craft, and I love sharing all this stuff with you guys. So today, big show. We're kind of going to mastering the basics again. Uh, I like to touch on that series uh, during the year a little bit. When we go back to like the roots of what we do, our proven processes, our basic business functions. I really like to hammer mastering the basics hard because sometimes we start thinking about the advanced, the next stages, the 10 year growth, things like that. And uh, what we what we really do know that is mastering those unsexy, mundane, boring things will actually lead to more success than sometimes the crazy, crazy big stuff uh, going on. So you can ask anything you want about exterior painting, staining, and you can also ask anything you want about anything else. But I'm going to share step by step my training SOP. So I've shared all my SOPs with everybody who watches. We have checklists and then we have the training SOPs. Uh, and then we have, uh, yeah. And then we have, uh, we have our checklist, which I'm going to share too. Uh, if you want to email me, Nick at nickslavic.com, I can send you a copy of my, uh, exterior SOP checklist, which is my quick reference guide. And, uh, I like to spread these things throughout the industry. Let me find, I can do a screen share for you. Let's see here. So this one right here and, uh, yeah. So if you're on, uh, if you're not watching on Facebook, you can certainly go over there and uh, yeah, uh, and go see the screen share because it, it, it's you get a much more immersive experience over in Facebook, Instagram. You'll be fine, but uh, you're just gonna have to do it in audio version only. So what you can see there is my exterior SOP checklist. It's a step-by-step quick reference guide for uh, basically it's a it's an adaptable, flexible sort of process where you can adapt it to a historic restoration. Uh, steel metal building, uh, any sort of exterior painting or staining project like that. So if you want one of those, email me nick at nickslavic.com and I can get you one of those. All right, we will. <laughs> Let me get back to, we'll hide that guy. And then what we will do is we will start talking about my exterior S- exterior SOP in a little bit. Before we dive into the actual training SOP, what I exactly train my people on, let's talk a little bit about the PCA, the Painting Contractors Association. So their, um, their drive is to build better contractors. And um, especially after the years of COVID where we couldn't get together uh, in person, there's a lot of value from getting together in person. And we've lost that a little bit over the last couple of years. We are back though. So one of the first big events of the year 
is the PBN event, Paint by Numbers event. It's it's put on by Jason Paris and his uh, band of merry gentlemen up here in Minnesota, uh, the Olive crew, all of his partners. And I'll be speaking at that event too. I'll be throwing a hand in on that, helping them out whenever I can. I will be I will be bringing my team, and it is uh, June twenty second, June twenty third, up here in Minneapolis. And the last time this event was put on was two years ago, uh, maybe three years ago, in a time before COVID. And I walked away from it saying that that was the most robust business lab slash workshop I've ever been to. And Jason and his partners opened up their business to us and basically showed us everything they do, how they do it, what's important to them, what they what they, what is not important to them, how they treat their people, how they develop. And uh, it was an amazing thing. So I would urge you, please, I know it's June, but invest in yourself and be there. Um, this next week, I'll actually be doing an international master's class. I'll be going to the Toronto area uh, in uh, up north here in Canada, and I'll be giving a, this is a really unique one, three mini master's classes all in an evening. And then we're doing an open question and answer session. I'll be going out to dinner with everybody there. It's going to be an insanely fun time. If you are within shooting distance of the Toronto area, even you Michigan people, Wisconsin people, check it out. It's going to be a very unique thing. I've not done three mini master's classes all in a day, but we're going to do quick hitters, open question and answer. <coughs> and it's going to be absolutely awesome. I'm really looking forward to that. Also, if you want to see me anywhere else in the country, if you're curious if I'm coming to somewhere in your neck of the woods, or if there's going to be a PCA event somewhere in your neck of the woods, go to the links in this show. Uh, there's a link to the PCA's website. There's a link to my events. And, you know, people always say, hey, why don't you ever come to California? And I will say I was there twice last year and I'm coming here this fall. So put it on your calendar and let's get there. Go to those links, check it out, and we'll go from there. All right. We'll see if we got any comments here. Ah, da, 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 da. Austin Schumacher. Good morning. Got registered for paint by numbers. Yes, that's going to be awesome. Awesome. We will see you there, Frank. Good to see you as normal. Regular viewer, Frank from Minnesota. Uh, all right, here we go. Adam Boise, you are welcome. Let's see if we got any IG comments before we go on here. Uh, oh, <laughs> Parano painting. Ah, Good to see you guys too. Kui, um, great to meet you. And hopefully we get to see you again at another uh, another event here. So, all right, everybody. Uh, again, for Instagram people, you're going to get a snapshot here, but uh, Facebook has the complete screen, uh, screen share. And let's follow along and let's see what we can do. Uh, sometimes when I screen share, it has a tendency to... Uh, uh, to kind of kick me off of audio. So just let me know if audio and video and everything is good here. Oh, a good friend, Brad Ellison. I won't make it to paint by numbers and I won't sleep a month because of it. Dude, uh, I hope we instill some FOMO, fear of missing out in you because it is a substantial event, uh, but I believe you have something really cool going on and uh, I don't blame you for, for taking a pause. So, all right here, let's see. Da, 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 da. Paul Rafferty, ooh, here we go. Would you come over to the UK, England uh, and Scotland? Yes, always yes, Paul. We can set that up. Uh, we can we can uh, work with local distributors, uh, manufacturers, things like that. And I can come to, I can come across the pond. It would be great. Actually, one of my uh, best friends in the industry, Chris Mole, is an Englishman like that. And I'm sure we could line something up where we do a little tour. Me and Chris visit England and go back to his hometown where he restored castles and all that other stuff. So. I tell you what, Paul, if you email me, nick at nickslavic.com, we can hook in the PCA and we can see what we can do. Interestingly enough, um, a year and a half ago, I was actually in the final stages of going to Australia uh, for the Ask a Painter sort of thing, master's classes, all that. And then COVID hit. 
I was actually slated to go to Columbia as well, too, uh, oddly enough. So um, all those trips got canceled in their final phases because of COVID. So I'm looking forward to some uh, some more travel like that. And we're also working on a little Brazil trip uh, this fall here, too. So it's going to be a lot of fun, everybody. So, okay. Ask any questions you guys want of anything. It can be about the exterior SOP. It can be about wallpaper. It can be about you know running the business, whatever. I'll get to it at the end of the show, but I am going to go through the SOP. For perspective, um, so I want to show you guys this. Remember, this right here is my exterior SOP checklist. This is my entire uh, exterior SOP on a one-page quick reference guide. We laminate these and we send these out into the field with new trainees so that they have a touch point into, into what we do. Um, each step, you can see here that uh, there, are, there are 26 steps in my SOP, exterior SOP. And when I go through my training SOP, which I'm going to go through step by step with you guys, I would go through every step and there's a visual or video depiction of what we do there. So it's going to be absolutely awesome. Chris Mole, the only show you'll ever need, Nick, as a man on a mission. Uh, yes, Chris Mole, I think you and I should put our heads together and do a little England trip uh, where we spread some love and some knowledge. So uh, Tom Schuster, it'd be great if you could hit on historical restoration. Yes. So Tom, like I said, we do a lot of historical restorations. Uh, this SOP is for that as well. It's an adaptable, malleable general process that we use for new houses, new construction, uh, mid-century houses, historic restoration. It's an adaptable process. And this SOP is more of a theory than it is the actual like, okay, now we have an SOP for stucco homes. Now we have a SOP for hardy board. Now we have an SOP for um, uh, you know cellulose-based wood siding from the 80s. No, this is just a general process. It can be used for historic restoration and everything else around. So uh, follow along. And I'd be happy to answer any specific questions about historic restoration if you need to. All right, so let's do the screen share and let's get rocking and rolling. So this, what you're gonna see here today is the exact training standard operating procedure that I train my people on. We've did this, we've done this a couple times already this year with our people, we do refreshers and all that other stuff. And uh, it's, a, it's a blast. Uh, Rick Mixell, uh, this sounds like a trick question. Do you ever power wash an old home with lead contamination? No, it is illegal uh, by the RRP uh, laws set forth by the EPA. Um, there is almost no way to do that legally. You have to recapture all the water and then recycle it. And at that point, it's a uh, it's a huge burden. And uh, I would you set yourself up for a lot of uh, a lot of trickiness in that one there. So, all right, I'm already seeing emails coming through looking for the SOPs. I absolutely love this stuff. So, okay, this is how we train our people. This SOP will get you 70% of the way there on a house. You must fill in the gaps with common sense. There is no way I could possibly list every single thing, every single iteration that you could, you could run into on a house. We have to use our human nature, our, our common sense to fill in the gaps. This SOP details 70% of what needs to be done. You need to use a little common sense, fill in the rest. So what's the secret to a great exterior paint job? Historic restoration, new construction, new siding, uh, whatever else. You have to do each task 100% before moving on to the next one. And also with exteriors, it's kind of like an inside joke in my company, but also you should have sweat running down your face. That is the way to achieve in exterior painting. And uh, you, can, you can say that, well, you, know, you don't necessarily need to do that or, or that's not fair. 
Yes. If you want to succeed with exterior painting, it is an aerobic exercise. And uh, yeah, doing each step 100% is very important. So thanks to our friends at Sherwin-Williams. Uh, Sherwin-Williams um, is, uh, is the basis of our exterior coatings and most of the interiors as well too. And they are underwriting this show today. And uh, I am not showcasing Sherwin-Williams products because they paid for this or showed me. This is my actual SOP. These are actually the products I use. These are my favorites. I've tried them all. And this is what we use every single day. Now I changed this SOP a little bit uh, because uh, we have supply chain issues. So my ex my standard exterior primer, my go-to is the SW Multipurpose Latex. And you can see we typically tint it into three different um, colors based on the um, based on the use on the house. Uh, I don't like to tint, you know, if, if a house is green, I don't like to necessarily tint it green. We'll just tint it gray, something like that. Just universal colors. That way we can use it on another house if we need to. Now, what's changed about this is now we have alternatives and for every coating we use, I have between seven and 10 different alternatives uh, because of supply chain issues. You never know what's going to be there, what's not, uh, demand, high, low, give or take. So other good primers, uh, fast drying interior, exterior oil, if you need to. I'm going to get into oil versus water in a second here. And then obviously extreme block. Uh, it's a water-based stain blocking primer like that too. That'll work really well as well. Um, this primer is very economical. Um, one interesting thing is as a craftsperson who's been around for almost 30 years now in the industry, um, it, it is like a scientific fact in the painting world that if you have like cedar siding, uh, we're up here in the upper Midwest and there's lots of cedar wood siding that's been put on in the last 50 years. And it's, it's like a, it's a truth that it bleeds, right? And it can peel and it can have moisture issues. So the traditional craftsperson way of dealing with this is like heavy, long oil primer, which is a very slow drying primer that'll penetrate and consolidate and sort of encapsulate all those stains. Now, we were restoring a whole bunch of barns one summer and it was wearing us out. That, that old barn wood is so craggy and we were trying to work this oil primer in. Our wrists were tired and we're, it just taken forever. It's like horse glue putting on there. So on the next barn restoration I did, this is about five or six years ago, I used Sherwin-Williams multi-purpose latex primer and that stuff went on like grease lightning. It filled the pores, but I was waiting for bleeding because that old barn wood is probably 300 years old, give or take, and it still got tannic acid in it and it could bleed through. And oh my God, I was just like expecting this whole thing to bleed. It was a white barn too. And it, it could have been just a disaster. On that barn, we did not get one ounce of bleeding. So historically, water-based primers do not block tannic acid stains or other stains in wood because they're water soluble and the water in the primer will actually put them into solution and pull them out. That's why everybody uses shellac-based primer to prime a knot uh, or uh, things like that. Or if they use uh, oil primer, you put it on wood and that'll encapsulate it. But after we had such a great um, um, product, uh, a great result on that barn, I started using it on all my bare exterior wood stuff, historic restorations and everything else. And in five or six years, I've never once had a bleed with this. So it goes against everything I know as a master craftsperson about water-based primers and paints, uh, you know, still having stain bleeding, but you can't argue with the data. I've not had a bleeding or an adhesion issue with this. Another great thing about this, again, I use all, all different primers and not all water-based white acrylic primers are all the same. Some are super heavy bodied, sit more on top, are opaque, build a beautiful finish. Uh, some penetrate. Multi-purpose latex is a penetrating primer. It feels almost thin at some points, but it almost feels like it sucks into the wood and just like hardens up like that and grabs every little bit of it. 
And we have done some of the most beautiful historic restorations ever with this product. If you have not used it, I would say, listen, I can't guarantee it's going to stop a stain, but it's hard to argue with my data set. And I would urge you to use it. Uh, let's see. All right. I see. Oh, my gosh here. Holy cow. We got lots of questions about this stuff. I'm going to dig into this, but I am going to get through this uh, SOP first and we'll go back and get all your questions here. That's great. You guys are already looking at my SOP and picking it apart and having questions. I love this. So, okay. So standard top coat duration flat. Uh, I know in other parts of the country, low luster and satin is used to give or take. That's fine. Um, typically in the upper Midwest, we deal with crazy, crazy temperature swings. It can be negative 40 Fahrenheit. It can be a hundred. It can be a hundred percent humidity, 20% humidity. <coughs> and, and the shinier paint we use up here on wood surfaces, we can actually get like blistering and bubbling because the, uh, the, the, uh, shinier the paint the more rubbery of a shell it has and it can actually cap capture that moisture in the wood even high relative humidity and it can't evaporate and so it'll actually form a big bubble or a blister and sometimes they go away but a lot of times you'll just have to keep going at it and fixing them so flat paints do not do that and we don't really have a lot of uh, fading issues either depending on the color of course but duration uh, duration flat is my go-to and i tell you what i'm going to do i'm going to get rid of my on-screen there we go. Make some more room on here. So, and obviously we're in the world of supply chain issues now. So if you can't get duration, so typically we have a whole bunch of different options here. There's even more than this, but these are kind of our go-to. You can get the Emerald, the Super Paint, the Rain Refresh, the Latitude. Um, my house on the outside here, when uh, Rain Refresh and Latitude both came out, I used the exterior of my house, uh, thanks to Sherwin-Williams, as a test ground for this stuff. And Rain Refresh is actually a really cool paint. We have a white house out in the country and there's bugs stuck to it. There's dirt and it's almost like a self-cleaning paint. It's actually kind of cool. So uh, if you can get it, great. Uh, they're great coatings and uh, just make sure you have other alternatives uh, depending on um, depending on supply chain stuff. So my go-to exterior stuff for brushing, uh, we have two favorite brushes in my company, the Purdy Alasco, uh, the Pro Extra. It's a two and a half inch uh, brush. You'll recognize this from my Purdy show. This is my go-to interior cut brush. It's also a phenomenal exterior brush for small things, trim, shakes, things like that. And then my big boy, my three-inch swan. It's a fatty. It's got a nice beaver tail handle. It applies a ton of paint. It washes easy. It's just like a workhorse of a brush. And we like to use uh, cut cans, labels removed, cleaned out, and then uh, chain hooks uh, as well too when we're, when we're painting from a, from a can. Step one of the SOP is called the greeting and verification phase. And this is basically the same on every one of my SOPs. The crew leader, you put a yard sign in, that's number one, and you go and greet the client if they're out there. And then you verify the scope, which is we have a, an item called or a, a document called jump sheet. It's basically a work order. And it tells us what we're painting, what color, what kind of finish, and uh, how much paint you use on, on all that stuff. So uh, yeah. Step number one, and then we create a project plan. This is kind of unique to our company. We actually have a document that feeds into our jump sheet, our work order, where painters are required to make a plan for the project. From start to finish, we want them to plan out how the hours are gonna be used in order to get this thing under budget. That not only helps uh, painters, craftspeople, and me visualize what they're thinking, how they're thinking about the project, it also lets us know if there's dry time issues and there's gonna be a gap in production or when they're gonna get done. And it, it, it's an insanely useful tool when scheduling our production managers and coordinators can look out and say, oh my gosh, you know, they're going to be done 
you know, Wednesday half day, they can start working on the next job already. So it's a, it's a useful thing. Before pictures. So when we do estimates, our estimators will actually capture lots and lots of images of the exteriors of houses. But basically, uh, we want our painters to do the same too. It's a more in-depth sort of before uh, picture. We also take afters, but you want the whole thing on the exterior of the house. You also want to zoom into foundation, windows, siding, areas where old paint has been sloppy on there. Uh, mistakes have been made by other painter or people. Um, anything that's already damaged, if there's a whole bunch of downspout screws missing and things like that, we just want to do a little CYA stuff just in case a client comes back and says, hey, you know, you like this here, you got a little paint on my um, uh, retaining wall here. We can say, well, actually, you know, uh, this is a, a deck we did. We can say, well, listen, that wasn't from us. We have a before picture like that. This is a deck local here in New Prague. And uh, a previous painter went there and just massacred this thing. They got paint everywhere. It's just dripping all over the place. And the problem is that the client wanted us to fix the deck and we did uh, to a very high degree, but they wanted it the same color. And it would be very easy for somebody to see our new color, which is the same as the old, and then it on the foundation and the um, uh, landscaping, and then kind of extrapolate that we may have put some of it there. And so what we did was put, take very in-depth uh, before and after pictures so that uh, we just, you know, just keeping honest people honest. If somebody said, hey, you got paint on my retaining wall, we can say, listen, we appreciate it. Here's the before pictures. Thanks for letting us know. But just being honest with you, it's not from us. These are all our pictures before and it's already there. The best before and afters, of course, we want it from the same angle uh, so we can get that beautiful, beautiful before and after pictures. This is a lake home that we did a couple years ago. And uh, yeah, the most satisfying ones are, are that. If you get the nice angles, the same shots over and over. Uh, this one, I don't know if you guys remember this house, this beautiful yellow farmhouse. Uh, this is the first the first ever Ask a Painter Live was done from this house ever. This is almost six years ago. And it was also the source of two of my first national awards uh, for this company. This, uh, this awesome couple let me restore the inside and the outside and pick most of the colors and the finishes. And I just absolutely love that project. That was uh, near and dear to my heart. Another beautiful Minnesota farmhouse here, best before and afters. Boy, they're satisfying when they're like this, when you can see an old farmhouse just losing all of its paint, and then it goes back to beautiful, beautiful white. So setting up a shop. Um, setting up a shop is taking all of our totes and gear out of a van and setting it somewhere convenient. We set up our coatings in, in steps and lanes. You can see here on this, we set down a drop cloth and we put all the coatings there by color, by shine, by use, whatever, just to keep them all straight. Uh, and then all our totes get laid out, lids off, put it in a nice little work area, uh, convenient to the job site. And uh, this was a really good example of a great job site setup where we're painting the exterior of this house. There's some um, there's some landscaping rocks right here. And uh, we put the we put the gear right in the rocks next to the driveway, central to the house. You can see the ladders are actually in the rocks as well. This is like a weird little quirky thing here. Um, when we stacked our ladders in the grass, sometimes we get calls from clients on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, the days we don't work, and they're saying, hey, I want to mow my lawn. You need to come out here and move these ladders. And uh, we're like, oh, shoot, that's too bad. So if you put them in the uh, uh, landscaping or somewhere where they're not going to be mowing the lawn, you won't get those calls on the weekend. So just being, being cognizant and respectful of the homeowner's property and just putting things conveniently to where you need them. Moving the client's personal items. So typically, I don't, I don't really uh, want to move a whole bunch of clients' personal items. But the truth is, if you tell everybody, move that grill, move that patio furniture, and everything else, or move those lamp decorative metal landscape art 
projects and things like that before we start uh half the time they just don't and we're not going to call off a job because you know there's a couple lawn chairs next to the house so we just move it we move it away uh just keep it safe away from the rest of the job site uh we trim trees and bushes back for safety so this is actually something clients have a lot of questions about. It's in our contract, our info sheet, that we need to trim bushes and trees back at least three feet from the house, not only so we can actually get a good paint job, but for safety as well, too. We need to get ladders in there. Our craftspeople need to get up there and do their thing. And people always have a lot of questions. When we say we're going to trim these bushes back, uh, a couple of them, we usually do them for free. If we have to bring chainsaws and manicure everything, we, we charge time and material. But they always have a vision in their head of these guys are going to come with a chainsaw and they're gonna shear off every bush in the house. And we try to just tell them like, we don't alter the shape of the bush. We just cut it three feet back from the house so we can safely get at it. And uh, we usually, again, we like the clients to do this stuff, but again, uh, people are busy nowadays and they don't have a lot of time to do this. And I'm not gonna call a job off just because of one bush needs to get trimmed on a house. So taking down exterior house lights, there was already a question about this one here. And uh, I actually went out into the field a couple weeks ago and grabbed some updated images of all this stuff. Taking off a house light seems like a very innocuous thing, unimportant, whatever else. The problem is it's one of the things, if we get callbacks on exteriors, it's one of the most things that, it's one of the most callbackable things we get on because it's rife for error. You can see in step one, we remove the light and then there's usually two little knurled brass nuts and then two wire nuts. The standard operating procedure is insanely precise and it's non-negotiable, which is, you screw the wire nuts back on each individual wire. You do not connect those wires together. You then put those nuts back on the fixture itself, and then you tape all those things together. The wire nuts get pointed straight up so they don't collect water like this. And then everything is secure there. And then the actual lighting fixture goes in the garage of the house safe. If you put it on the landscaping or put it in the yard, it might get broken, give or take. People find fantastic ways to ruin this process. They'll put the little brass nuts in their pocket. They won't cap the wires, which is completely unsafe. They'll connect the wires together. They'll uh, put the put the wire nuts and the brass knurled nuts in a pile on the garage floor next to the light, and they're always lost. The most important thing we can do is put all the items, the knurled nuts, the, um, uh, the wire nuts on the actual fixture and tape them on to not only protect them from paint, but to just physically hold them there till the end of the job. Later on in the SOP, there's obviously reconnecting and we'll go over that as well too. Removing downspouts in the immediate work area. So even when we paint downspouts, we will take them off and we'll prep and paint behind them. And then sometimes on the second coat, we'll reattach and then paint them the whole house second coat with the downspouts on there. Just depends, <coughs> colors, finishes, etc. Again, this seems innocuous. It seems unimportant, but people lose half the downspout screws every time. So uh, the SOP is to tape them to the downspout and then, uh, you know, take them off and install them at the end of the job using a nut driver, which is the proper way to do it. But we know better. We know human nature. We're still going to lose them. So what we do is our project managers and our crew leaders, we actually just buy bulk, um, you know, downspout and gutter kind of, you know, hex screws like that. And uh, we just have extras. It's just the way it is. And people are people and we'll lose them. So plasticking the doors and windows. Uh, even when we brush finishes, even on small areas, we completely mask the windows because we want to look the client in the face and say, if a client comes to us and says, hey, you got a drip of paint on my windows, we can say, I can guarantee you we didn't because we didn't even crack a can of paint open and we 100% sealed all the windows on your home for this, even when we brush. 
And we'll see, uh, we're on farm internet out here and I have an actual video of uh, mask in here. And I am going to see if we can actually get it to play. Uh, yeah. Morning, everybody. All right. Beautiful Monday so here in Minnesota. Me talking. And this is the actual standard operating Four procedure. My people were asking for an updated one here. So this is what I did. So I have a uh, 3M hand masker. Uh, typically I'll do either four foot or six foot or nine foot plastic. Uh, we are big fans. We are uh, a frog tape commercial, the blue stuff. So we exclusively use that for our company. We have a painter's tool and then a utility knife. And this is a window on a historic restoration. The whole house has been prepped uh, and reprepped. And then you can see here what I'm doing is I am taking off just enough plastic to sort of reach the edges, maybe a quarter inch short, because we're going to have to put uh, tape on the sides. So we want to leave a little bit of plastic uh, towards the inside of the window. You don't necessarily want the plastic hanging over the side. This is also a great technique for windy days too. So you can see, I take the 3M hand masker, I apply a section of plastic, I tack it down on top. The next step will be to expand it down and then tack with tape the two bottom corners in order to keep that plastic steady. Now you can see the wind kicking up on this job site. Uh, I have the plastic in my hand. I'll rip off a tiny little piece of tape and I'll just secure the two bottom corners so it doesn't go crazy here. We got the left side right there. And this is, a, I, I see young apprentices and inexperienced painters kind of struggle with this. And yes, it does take a little bit of time if you've never done this, especially on a windy day, but you do a couple of these things and it's just going to be perfect. So we got it tacked down and now you can see the plastic is nice and tight uh, on the sides and that'll aid in taping, but it also allows us to, you know, not have this plastic flapping around. A lot of people ask if you can just tuck that extra plastic in and yes, you're fine, but in 10 seconds, you can cut that off and you can do what's called tight prep, which is now you have this beautiful tight taut plastic and you don't need to hold the plastic at all. It'll actually just sit there for you and you can use your frog tape and finish off. And a lot of the stuff you can see me using the edge of the metal window to kind of snap the tape at a nice angle. I ran the tape a little extra, I'm just pressing it down there. Then same thing with the left side. And again, standard operating procedure. Dispense the uh, tape on top, tack the two corners, cut off the excess, right side, left side, bottom. So if you look at the timestamps on this video, uh, the whole minute, uh, the whole video is about four and a half minutes. I talk for the first two minutes. So really between two and two and a half minutes when you're already set up, that should take you to, to mask a window. People, people often give this stuff a lot more weight and complication than it is and it's really not that at all so you can see i'm kind of uh, uh running the tape a little extra here secure in the bottom and we do that tight prep we do that oh that one was a little wider needed an extra roll we do this tight prep so the plastic doesn't blow around and bill so you can see the painter's tool here this is how you get a nice 90 degree edge you hold it there as a guide and snap the tape beautiful edge right there no cutting no picking no anything else like that if you have a whole bunch of extra plastic uh, tucked in or uh, it's, it's billowing and it's not that tight, the wind could release it. It could start flapping around and then a client will call you on a Saturday night saying, hey, there's a piece of plastic flapping outside my window. window down, so many come over here go. and fix it. So, all right. Easy, simple process. And again, we'll get to all your questions related to this or otherwise uh, in just a little bit. Now, ladder brace. You can see here 
there's ladder braces. Those are those kind of, uh, they come in a lot of different names, standoffs, things like that. But when we have those big windows, like on this historic storefront here, they're big. They're at least five feet tall. If you put a ladder right underneath, <coughs> it's going to be unsafe and hard to reach the top. So what we do is we use a standoff and either get you halfway through or low, and then it brings you out away from the siding, allowing you to mask safely. I will get to all your questions in a little bit here. So masking service and entry doors. We have a standard operating procedure for this because we want to be able to spray these areas, but we also want the client to go in and out at their will. So you, what you can see here is this is what it looks like uh, when you just walk up on it. Uh, for those little metal side light bases, I just completely cover those in tape because uh, typically anything flat like that would uh, usually gets a little scuffs and, and cuts in it. So I just like tape. It just stays there a long time. We've masked off with plastic the side lights themselves, and we've actually uh, did the border of the door. We've opened the door here and then wrapped the plastic around it and then made the handle useful so or usable. So the client can actually go in and out, and when that door is shut, you can actually spray that whole entire unit right there, but the door is still usable, and that's a nice little thing we do for our clients. When we, pre when we prep a garage door. Now, you don't necessarily need to do this. If we were painting siding and garage door, you wouldn't need to do this, but we were going very dark gray on this house, covering up this green, and then we we're going white on the garage door, and we didn't want a bunch of super dark gray overspray on this for coverage reasons. So what I did first, this is really rough cedar. I put a line of duct tape here first because duct tape is very sticky, malleable. It'll stick to it really well. And then uh, what you do is same thing with the 3M masker. We take nine foot plastic and then do our blue tape onto the duct tape to stick better. Because this much plastic typically will start blowing and flapping around if you just do blue tape on rough wood, give or take. It doesn't is here as well. So prepping and masking garage doors for paint. Now you can see here what we did. We are huge fans of the 12 inch plastic. And then anytime we tape onto masonry services, it's always duct tape. So I put a line of 12 inch right under the garage door so that when the garage door comes down, you get that great seal right there. And our typical um, process for protecting surfaces would be anywhere where we're gonna spray next to the, the surfaces right adjoining the areas we're gonna spray, we do 12 inch plastic, duct tape or blue tape, and then we put drop cloths and then a lot of times we'll do cardboard or a spray shield over that to hold the drop cloth down. This is called tight prep. When you look at this house, this is the textbook example of what I would consider a well-prepped home. You don't have a bunch of extra plastic billing around. Everything is nice and tight, secured, neat, tidy, and this will make a beautiful, beautiful paint job. Then we start looking for miscellaneous items on the house. So again, hand masker on this historic restoration, we actually had this kind of cool limestone here. Uh, on this one, we did not take off this uh, historic uh, light fixture because it's 100 years old and it was rusted onto the house and I'm not going to break it in order to do that there. So uh, we also have uh, electrical outlets, hose bibs, things like that. You look for the different stuff and you can see the progression here. We're doing, um, yeah, we're doing windows, we're doing doors, we're doing garage doors, we're doing miscellaneous stuff. We're working from the big items down to the small items. We're masking adjoining surfaces, if not painting. So this is a house we did a couple weeks ago, and we're not painting the vinyl siding. So typically the SOP is four feet of hand masker plastic. We make a nice line with our frog tape, adhere it really well so it doesn't blow away. You can see all the soffits and uh, fascias were done as well. Those are all clad metal and not being painted here. And this is our standard operating procedure for roofs and other kind of horizontal surfaces too. <coughs> yeah, you heard me say that we use duct tape on any sort of cementitious or uh, uh, asphalt surfaces. We do the same thing for shingles too. 
And we have a nice, you know, if you're going to drip on a house, on a roof, it's going to be in that first 12 inches between the siding and the shingles because your drop cloth will uh, fly back or, or move or something. And all the drips come straight down in that first 12 inches. So we're very intentional about putting that 12 inch uh, plastic down first and then drop cloths over. And I'll show you here. This is our actual step-by-step -step standard operating procedure. On this one, we actually use paper just to give you another example, but we have converted to all 12 inch plastic. It, it, it stands up better in the weather too. So you can see number one, this is a historic restoration we did last year. There's duct tape first. You kind of push it in and out of the shingles, give you a nice something to stick blue tape to. And then blue tape goes on, 12 inch plastic. And then you adhere the outside as well too, because this stuff can stay for weeks on end like this. And it's not going to flap around and come off, things like that. We then put uh, drop cloths over. And then on this particular roof, we had a chicken ladder, a single section ladder that we go up over here. So just looking at some comments on Instagram. Let me make sure the audio is still good. Do, 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 do. All right. Oh, boy, we got a bunch of good questions here. I will get to these in just a second, everybody. All right. Then we drop cloth the immediate work area. So after the main prep of the house is done, only the areas where we're going to actually be painting will drop cloth. We don't want to waste our time on other areas. But you can see my guys did a perfect example of covering these bushes, these square bushes, covering the area. And we cover way out, even over sidewalks and things, just because you never know if you're going to get a drip, if you're carrying a bucket, moving a sprayer. Yeah, you don't want to be messing around with getting paint on anything. Anti-slip mats are very important. So on this particular um, house here, this is a Trex deck or one of those composite decks and it was brand new. And for those of you uh, who have never <laughs> experienced one of those before, that stuff is grease lightning. It is like Teflon. So we use uh, two different kinds of anti-slip mats. There's some rubberized ones and there's also some drop cloths with those anti-skid things on them. Both work well, but you got to use them on those. Otherwise those ladders will shoot out on you. Then we scrape loose paint, give or take, because now the, now the prep is kind of done, give or take. And obviously, if we're doing a historic restoration, we have to do this to the EPA RRP guidelines. This is a very subjective sort of thing. And um, I, we can give an SOP. And obviously, the, the idea is simple. Take a scraper and move it over the wood and remove some paint. But how much? How little? What are we looking for? What are we not looking for? That's something that we give a lot of demos on site. Um, one thing that we practice in my company is something called reasonable restoration. When we do uh, big Victorian mansion restorations, we're very clear to tell people that here's two things that do exist. There is the, we can power wash your house and spray a coat of paint on, which is illegal and stupid and not good for you or your house, but it is cheap. And we would never do that. And then there's the museum quality restoration where we strip your entire house down to bare wood, do all the carpentry repairs and build a finish over multiple coats of primer, caulking, sealing, filling nail holes, prime, 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 top coat, top coat, top coat. And that's fine. Nobody wants to pay for that though. So what we do is something in the middle called reasonable restoration, which is I just described to the client about how many hours we're going to do. Um, for a typical Victorian mansion restoration, we're going to spend between 600 and a thousand hours on your house mainly at least 50 to 60% of that will be on the actual prep. And that's how I tell people like what to expect with that. Like we're not going to get every single bit of stuff off, but we're going to go way farther than any other company will. We're going to go way farther than any homeowner will. And old homes, historic homes are maintenance items. People want a warranty for a long time on their historic homes. And I don't blame them. They're very expensive to paint, but that would be warranting every single thing that's been done in the last 150 years of that house. And we can't stand by that at all. So what we tell people is just we're upfront and honest, like 
somewhere between five and 15 years, you're going to have to start painting something on this house because it's going to be wearing. You don't have to repaint the whole house. It may just be windowsills, porches, things like that. <coughs> but you will have to do that. It's not going to be 25 years and then before it needs a paint job, it's going to take maintenance. But the basic thing I tell my people is this is a this image is a great example of if you can see a shadow underneath that chip of paint, it's coming off, give or take. If it's delaminated, if it's not adhered, if there's no shadow underneath it, it might be adhered, but you always have to take a crack at it with a scraper. Sanding, only if in the scope of work. So we always offer this to our clients. I used to do a lot of it. I used to sand these houses within an inch of their life. And I, I found out that even though I described this process, the clients didn't know we did it and they didn't find any value in it. So now we just offer it as an option. Obviously, if, if we have a newer home and we wash the wood uh, legally, and we do rough it up, we will sand it anyway. But some people uh, some people like to do a lot of sanding. Some people don't like any, and we just you know offer it as an option for them. Uh, how to brush. So again, I, I don't wanna sound like a dictator, but I've been doing this for 30 years and I've tried everything and I want my people to win. I want them to do it the best they can. I want them to do it the fast they can. So I lay out some very strict guidelines for this stuff because it is the fastest and the best way I've found. So typically what we do top to bottom, left to right, Pick one to five boards and you do the lip first, the, the butt first of the board, and then the face. One board at a time, top to bottom, and just like robot finishing, uh, top to bottom. Uh, 100% coverage, wet edge. It's a very simple system. But when people don't do it well, it, it turns out really bad. Now, Trim again, um, I have a very distinct way that I like my in. people to dip their brushes as well too. Again, because I've tried it all and I've probably done this movement, you know, 300,000 times in my life where we have a cut can, we have a brush and I am not a slapper, I am a wiper. And painters kind of fall into those two things, which is I dip my brush, that is slapping right there where people like to slap it around on the inside of the thing. It's messy and it takes about five or six times longer than dipping. So what you see me do, my technique is dip in, get an inch, inch and a half of paint, wipe one side, tip it up, and then go towards the wall like that. Dip it in, half inch of paint, wipe one side, tip it up so it doesn't drip, and then you go to the wall. That's the proper way to do it. It's quicker, it's easier. Some people say, well, there's paint on only one side of the brush, and I'll say, never slowed production down at all. And this is basically how you do a section. So I picked a, a section of a steel-sided house here. And typically what we would always do is top to bottom, left to right, right to left, something like that. I just picked a section low to the ground to show people that here's my process. When I do a section of siding, I do these borders, these edges first. I fill in the edges because those are the things that people miss. People typically never miss the middle face of a board, the, the face in the middle of a board. So what I do is you do the edges first, the little bordering lines. You do a lip first like this, and you always have to put eyes on it. It's so important that you should be reaching below you to paint those things. You should always be looking up at that lip to make sure you get 100% coverage. And then you can see um, this, is not, uh, this is not taking very much time. Dip wipe. This whole uh, video is about two and a half minutes long, and there's probably about 24 square feet of siding on here. So you can see when you just get after it, when the prep is done and it's time to paint, it's a very simple thing. No wasted efforts, fast hand motions, spreading that paint out evenly. And I find with exterior siding, people like to kind of do, you know, like long, slow strokes like this. That doesn't fill in pores. What fills in pores is rapid movements back and forth, uh, wiping the paint back and forth over those pores like that. So you can see, again, no wasted movements, rapid hand movements and just going like a robot. Dip, wipe, to the siding. Do a lip, do an edge, do a face. 
wipe in some extra. One more lip. It's always satisfying to watch paint. Even if it is awkward when it's yourself. <laughs> yeah, so that's basically about it. Pretty simple technique, but again, mastering the basics. Uh, brushing trim as well too. So again, you no wasted movements, rapid motions, intentional mo uh, intentional motions as well too. So typically, what what uh, what I will always do is I start off with the top of the window like this. I will do the section closest to the window and work my way out to the cut edge. And it typically only takes two or three brushfuls like that. So being intentional, filling in step by step, not skipping around, not missing anything. Uh, basically starting from the top of that trim board and then working my way to the top and you can see cutting that lip and the 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 basic technique there is not putting the brush straight on when cutting it's tipping the brush up at a 45 like that and letting those beautiful bristles do the work so again just like when we plastic windows you go to the left side then you go to the right side then you go to the bottom i do the piece closest to the window same motion same process every single time cutting the edge and again, whole video is a minute 45. That means it takes you somewhere between one and a half and two minutes in total to cut the trim on a window like this. So you can see letting the bristles do the work. Not a lot of force, not a lot of crazy movement, everything intentional. This wood is already sealed. This is just the second coat on this particular trim. And I'm just letting the bristles run over that edge. This isn't like cutting a ceiling line where it has to be insanely precise. The outside edge of that trim is going to be weird, especially on a hundred year old building like this. And you basically just kind of run it along the edge, visually making a clean line and moving on. But simple, uh, people, people give this a lot more weight than it is, uh, but basically you just put it on, be intentional, don't waste any motion. One of the principles that I've learned as a craftsperson is coverage, 100% coverage. Easier said than done, right? You just cover the surface with paint, but inexperienced people or unintentional people don't do this very well. And you can actually have to repaint an entire house if you do this. This is a, a soffit, a beadboard soffit on a hundred year old historic home. And you can see, this is the primer phase right here. All the prep has been done. This is what hundred percent coverage looks like. And this is the standard. The thing that we tell our people and the thing that I know to be true from my 30 years of doing this is that when we have a historic home, like the picture I showed you where it's just like bare wood. If you take the time to slather on that primer, 100% coverage on the prime coat. All the pores are filled, cracks are filled, nail holes are filled with primer, everything. You do not have to back roll or back brush on top coats. If the pores are filled, you can spray only. Think about brand new LP siding, things like that. You don't need to back brush and back roll that stuff because the pores are filled. Same thing goes with historic restoration and any surface that's porous. If the pores are filled, then you don't need to go back and back brush and back roll. You certainly can if you like. Another principle uh, uh, that I learned as a craftsperson is something called wet edge. And this applies for interior painting, exterior painting. If you want your house to, to dry with no lap marks, color and shine, all nice and even, you keep a wet edge. And when we work in two-person crews on exteriors, like on this section, we were doing some brushing. So this person will take four boards. This person will take four boards and they kind of move like combines in a field. One person ahead of the other one like this, moving in a nice steady line, taking that wet edge and moving it gradually down the house, not skipping all over, not having dry marks in the middle. It gives you that beautiful, even uh, color and shine. When we do siding first and then trim, we will overlap onto the trim because I want that nice sort of like coverage right there. A lot of people have a tendency to not do that. And then you'll have open pores on those edges. 
creating a lot of touch up later on. So we like to go an inch over on the trim. So spot prime or, or full prime, give or take. This is a historic restoration we did in New Ulm. Uh, it had a lot of priming to do, but not quite worthy of a full prime. It was just easier to kind of brush spot prime, give or take, but filling the pores. This is an example of, this is actually my old historic home that we sold a couple of years ago, but this is an example of spot priming my historic home like this. You can see the areas that get a lot of sun and water exposure down south, uh, down low on the house and west, you get it. But then you see up in the eaves and things here, not a lot because sun and rain don't normally hit it on the north side. And this one that you guys saw before, this is an example of a full prime. This would not be worth it to spot prime. Just get out the sprayer, get out the roller or the brush and just slather that primer on, fill those pores, soak this house with primer, give it a good substrate uh, for the future. And this is typically my setup for back brushing, back rolling, filling pores. On my own house, the, the house that we're living in here that we built two years ago, it's got brand new LP smart site on it. There was no back brushing and back rolling. We just sprayed the paint on, the pores are already filled, we're good. But if you need to fill the pores, this is my go-to setup. You got a two gallon bucket, you got a roller grid, you got a pretty marathon, those thick, fatty, sort of like really nice, robust rollers. Mini roller here, handle, uh, three inch swan, and, and a chain hook and you just go to town with this stuff. You're almost hot mopping primer on at some point like that. Now, I like to apply a lot of my exterior coatings with a sprayer, obviously. Interior, sprayers will give you good coverage and a beautiful finish. And it's way more of a finishing tool than it is an application tool. On the exteriors, it's only for me an application tool. The, a sprayer is a tool to get paint very quickly from the bucket of paint onto the wall. And when the pores need to be filled, I go up on the ladder and I kind of like a somewhere between a five and 10 inch extension on mine too, just to give you a little extra reach. Uh, typically I'll go as small as a 310 uh, for historic restoration. It seems to do the clapboards well. For big, like that stucco house we were doing, we used a 517. Uh, those are beautiful, beautiful tips. And we typically use an HEA or uh, FFLP, give or take. Uh, but yeah, the, the sprayer and the two gallon bucket with the brush and the roller is basically your tools. If you get up there, you spray a section and then you uh, back brush or back roll like that. That's my go-to setup right there. And this is uh, the standard for, for priming and back rolling. And I, uh, I did this on an old farm building. And I, I do this as an example to show people that, okay, we're gonna get by the soffit and fascia portion and show you a section in the middle here. I'm using a spray shield there. Okay, come on farm internet, keep up with me here. All right, so what you'll see here is I'm spray applying the primer like this, heavy, 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 heavy primer. And then I take a roller and I'm brushing it into the port or excuse me, rolling and pushing it into the pores here. If you don't do this, you're just going to have open poured wood with a, which lets water in and you're going to get peeling and failing sooner. And it also doesn't look as good. But when you get this fat roller, it doesn't look like I'm doing much to it. But that roller is just saturated with paint. And the paint, I like to get that primer so thick on there, it almost drips off the siding. And then you're just manipulating the primer over on the thing like that. Now, the interesting thing is this is a 16 and a half minute video, give or take. And you can see the entire side of this um, old farm building has been sprayed and back rolled. So again, when people take a look at this, they might think, oh my God, we're gonna be here all day. This is just old craggy, crazy wood. It's so porous, things like that. But literally when you get going, when you have all your stuff set up and you're doing this, less than 20 minutes, you can uh, prime and back roll and fill all the pores on a, on a side of a building like this, which means that theoretically in a couple hours, you can prime and back roll an entire farm building like this, which just takes a lot of work.
All right, guys, I'm seeing all your questions come through. We will get to them shortly. And here's the same thing here, but in a smaller section on the other side there. You can kind of see when we're not on the ladder doing that. So you can see my setup like this. I'm spraying the edges like that. And on this particular farm building, they opted to not do, you know, some carpentry and thing. It's an uninsulated old uh, machine shed. So this is more of just like protect the wood, let it go. So you can see I'm using a thinner tip. A bigger tip doesn't necessarily mean better. A nice concentrated 310, 410, something like that will put a lot of primer into a very specific area. And you're not really going to save a lot of time with a bigger tip, uh, but you can be more surgical with that smaller tip on something like this. So you can see right here doing a section back rolling just slathering that stuff on there you can certainly do it with a brush too but on some of this wood like this that's very uneven i like to really get out those fat little marathon mini rollers and just slather that on it's just oh it's so satisfying to see that stuff there's something deeply satisfying to me especially with historic restorations when you take that old wood that's just porous and you know, half of it's got paint, half of it doesn't, and you just consolidate it into that beautiful, like even substrate like that. It's just super satisfying. Okay, caulking. Interestingly enough, uh, I am a firm believer in caulking after priming. If you've ever applied caulking to bare wood, you know that in a very short a while, it'll not stick, it'll not adhere, and you can actually like zipper it off the house. What you need to do, if you want your caulking to last forever, you prime first. So you can see in the example of this garage here, uh, there was some rot on the side of this board. So what I did was I dug it all out. And again, I slathered primer in there to consolidate the substrate. Heavy primer, just jabbed it in there. It, some of this stuff went all the way to the uh, <coughs> sheer wall of the house. They didn't want to opt for the carpentry. So I said, oh, I can give you another you know, four or five years out of this if you want. So I completely slathered and sealed with primer. And then I came back with the caulking, the cedar colored caulking that you can see here, and then uh, painted it all and it, and it worked out very well. So siding, uh, top coat on the brush. Typically we would not have five people on a project together, but this was a training project that we did. But you can see top to bottom, left to right, wet edge, using the trim strategically to place ladders on so we can go from top to bottom and keep a wet edge on that stuff. Spraying is the same thing. You can be strategic with that stuff too. Use breaks of the house, but the general idea is top to bottom, left to right. And I got a little time lapse of an old farmhouse that we did as well too, kind of to show you the process here. So if we were going to brush and roll, we'd be very specific about four or five boards at a time, right to left. But you can see I'm strategically using the windows on this house to place the ladder so I can spray all around the ladder. And I'm going top to bottom. I'm keeping that kind of peak done right here. With spraying is so fast, you can kind of skip around a little bit, but you can see I'm not leaving boards dry. I'm always keeping that wet edge moving top to bottom, generally pushing the entire house all at the same thing. And then finally, that last little bit, you go top to bottom, left to right, finish off that last section and move on. Super satisfying. <laughs> I love doing that stuff, especially when all the prep is done. So same thing here. Um, typically what we'll do uh, is have spray shields, drop cloths, things like that. If we're on a house in town and it's got a whole bunch of landscaping, blacktop asphalt, obviously we're gonna prep it to the nines. But also when we're doing like farm buildings and things with not a lot of landscaping and things, we'll get a spray shield. And sometimes when we work in teams here too, we'll actually get a pole and a spray shield. One person could stand back and shield so the other person can spray as well. Same thing here. This is our standard operating procedure. What you see down here is we have 
uh, masking and plastic up against the wall. That's our kind of drip stopper there. And to have some secure stuff, we put drop clouds down to cover the new asphalt, but then we'll take cardboard or actually floor shell, try and make a floor shell, cut it up and lay it over. Because when you spray down low, anybody who's sprayed low on siding, it actually kicks back the drop cloth because you're spraying with two to 3000 PSI a lot of the times. So in order to keep the drop cloth down and keep your drop cloths clean, we'll actually use floor shell or uh, cardboard over the top there. And then trim. Um, so I used an example of a historic restoration job that we've won a couple of awards for. Uh, picking off those things strategically on a house like this, I would do all the cream trim first, then do the brown uh, scallop shakes, and then come down to the teal accents, things like that. But I use this as an example of like a thought experiment on how we, how we paint trim. So lots of spray processes in my company. Um, we don't always do the body and then the trim. So typically on a house, this is the house we have coming up here, a big, beautiful kind of house. Uh, the siding and the trim is almost a 50-50 ratio. So at this point, it would actually be more advantageous for the project and the quality and the speed to actually spray all the trim first and then go back and either hand do the siding because it's all broken up in little bits or then remask really at, uh, strategically and then spray the siding as well too. So we don't always do body than siding. And then here's houses where it would obviously be, there's not that much trim. So you just spray the body and then hand finish the trim at the end. Sometimes it's not worth remasking body and all that stuff just to spray the trim. Siding top coat too. And then install the lights. So obviously when you install the lights, you want it all to go back the same way. And you, little tip from a pro, you always want to test them out too. Because again, Saturday night, a client will call you and say, hey, two lights on my house don't work. I need you to come out here ASAP and get this. And you don't want to go up to a house for that. We reinstall the downspouts. We move the client's personal items back. We clean up the job site. I like to wash out my brushes and sprayers on site and sometimes even lay them out uh, to dry out in the sun so that they're ready for the next day. Bag up all the trash, put it in the client's trash can. We have a clause in our contract for a certain amount of money. We'll get rid of it, but we like to have the clients each throw their own trash away. And then the van SOP, load all the gear in the van. We put, a, we put a can label on every one of our cans and leave it for the client about date, placement, you know, things like that, color. And then typically we would go through uh, questions uh, that anybody has for uh, the company when we do this sort of thing. So I will get back here. All right, so there we are. <coughs> All right, man, we got a lot of questions here. So I am going to, I'm going to go back to the top here. Holy mama, this is great. I love questions like this. All right, let me check Instagram first. Sometimes I neglect Instagram. Do, 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 do. I know uh, my good friend Ronnie, Brazilian Ronnie, was on here commenting. Ronnie, my good friend. Bom dia. I'm sure there are much more contractors on the same way, but looking how much saved data you have already is just insane. I wish I could share it in all the details to our Brazilian community. Ronnie, you know, if you email me and send me a reminder, I'll share this with everybody in the Brazilian community. That That is the least I can do for you guys. You guys are such uh, such awesome people and such, uh, you know, advocators of the trade and things like that. So, all right. Chris Mole, always good to see you. Tom Schuster, it would be great if you could hit a little on historic restoration. Same process, same exact process, except you'll notice on my standard operating procedure that there is a little clause for the RRP prep there too. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, one thing you have to observe. Uh, yeah, I won't talk anything more about the RRP law. It's a pretty tricky law. Uh, we abide by it. We do our best. Um, 
and yeah, it's it's a tricky thing to to go fully legal on like that. Uh, let's see, Rick Mixell, do you ever power wash an old home with lead? No, it's illegal, basically. Uh, good morning, and thanks for sharing, Holly. Absolutely. Good morning, Harvey. Rick, thanks for that answer. Our client is insisting I'm going to share this with them. Uh, I tell you what, don't use me as the lightning rod, Rick. Send them the RRP law from the EPA and show them your certification and then tell them if you want to pay for me to recapture all this water and recycle it, we can, but it's going to be an added cost. So yeah, that's how it works. Gustavo, so y'all remove house lights and select downspouts. Why not mask them? Because we like to paint behind them. We like to do a really good job of that stuff. Tyler Johnson, do you always need to prime brick? No. Uh, one of the most beautiful coating systems on the face of the planet is Sherwin-Williams Loxon XP. When we have bare masonry, old stucco, even pre-painted masonry and stucco, we use two coats, Sherwin-Williams Loxon XP. It's a self-priming system. Uh, you don't need to do like a block conditioner, a masonry primer, and then that. And some of the longest lasting paint jobs that I have ever done, ever done, are two coats of Sherwin-Williams Loxon XP. It's absolutely beautiful. What primer would you suggest on red brick? Honestly, I would go Sherwin-Williams Loxon XP. Cynthia Reynolds, thank you for explaining the blistering that makes deciding uh, which finish to go with on exterior porch columns. Yes. <coughs> exterior, uh, Cynthia, uh, you may have a historic home if I remember right. Um, columns suffer from a lot of moisture and typically they're hollow wood and they have an open base and they're on a porch which has a open to the ground and there's lots of water that migrates through those. Water splashes at the base. It doesn't necessarily get out. So I would say make sure that you are slathering those columns with a lot of coating and just understand that they're a maintenance issue. Every year or two, you may have to get out there and touch up the bases, but you got to keep those things sealed. Sherwin-Williams Duration Flat is a magical paint for that stuff. Brandon, how's it going, man? Brandon Lumby, have you had a chance to try out that brush? Not yet. So I've been a busy, busy man this week with personnel and training and out in the field. Uh, you gave me an awesome brush and we'll get out there and use it shortly. So thank you so much. Uh, going to catch up with the show later. I uh, got to get back to it, Chris. I think you're on a family vacation, Chris Mole. Get back to that family. So uh, Jason Williams, thoughts on Woodscape Solid on Cedar Houses in Minnesota with duration for trim. I've had many conversations. Uh, yes. So this is actually when houses are previously painted, we'll use duration. When houses are maybe not previously painted, actually one of my favorite coating systems is solid color acrylic siding stain. The basic difference between like an acrylic paint, a super premium, you know, 100% acrylic paint and a solid color acrylic stain, they both will give you a painted look, but the paint creates a much more like shell on top of the thing. It can be susceptible to peeling before it fades. The solid color acrylic stain is susceptible to fading before it peels. So a lot of the times that we have our cedar homes up here that have kind of been stained and they're finally getting converted to a painted finish, we will 100%, Jason, go to solid color acrylic stain. And that is actually a longer lasting finish than paint sometimes in that. So, and it's my preference. But if a paint is, but if a house is previously painted, it's best to go with paint again, generally. Sam Larson, apprentice Sam Larson. Good to see you this morning. I, I understand that Sam was fishing at a lake and saw my family there yesterday uh, as well too. So Sam, have an awesome weekend. Oscar Milan, good to see you, my friend. Uh, let's see, Ernesto Ramos, good morning. Uh, Holly, do you ever skip power washing because siding is so neglected and it seems to just cause endless flaking? Thinking farmhouse from 1900 that has been painted, uh, in, that hasn't been painted in 50 years. Uh, yes, back to that thing again. 
theoretically, theoretically, I talk in hyperbole, theoretically, every house built before 1978 is illegal to wash unless you can prove it doesn't have lead or unless you recapture all the water. There are monster intricacies to the EPA RRP lead law. This is just, we don't pressure wash them because I looked into recapturing all this water and, and it's just, it's a wild amount of effort that nobody's going to pay for. So we hand prep our houses. So Charlotte, how's it going? Favorite painter. I do appreciate that. That's very kind to you. All right, here we go. Uh, why, uh, Paul, how's it going? Why a uh, 517 FFLP if it's strictly for application from bucket to substrate? Seems like a waste of money being that tip is double the cost. Um, so to me, sundries and tips and brushes are of uh, very little consequence monetarily to me. Um, when we did uh, the stucco house, when we turned that green stucco house from green to, to that, I like to test out um, tips. I like 310s, I like 415, 417s, and I like 517s, give or take. 517. I chose a 517 for this project because we're spraying Loxon XP, which is one of the thickest paints on the planet. And we also have very big walls with no breaks. So I wanted a nice wide fan pattern. And Paul, you'll know what I mean when I say this, but you can look at the technical data sheets and you can, it'll say, I recommend this tip or this pressure or whatever else. Some coatings, some substrates and some tips and some sprayers just work magically together. For this project, we tried out a few. We used a Titan Elite 3000. We used a 517 HEA, Loxon XP over that stucco. It was the most beautiful, magical thing ever. We used hardly any paint on the project. We maybe used seven or eight gallons on two coats on the entire house. With Loxon XP, technically you can get into when you're hand brushing and rolling or you use a um, miss aligned tip or process, you can go through tons and tons of paint. We did it to the correct wet mill thickness. It was, it was just like when things are all in tune and beautiful, it runs like a Ferrari race car. And that was the key there. Typically, I do not use a 517 on a lot of my projects like historic farmhouses. We will literally use like a, a 310 or a 312 because we only need to do a couple clabbers at a time like that. And a 517 is just a big waste on something like that. Ah, Austin. Oh boy, here we go. I knew I'd get a vinyl siding question sooner or later. One of my, interestingly enough, one of my most, most watched Aska painters was one in like the single digits where I was on my own back porch talking about painting vinyl siding. People love that show for some reason. So um, for painting vinyl siding, how do you get behind the siding where the pieces overlap? As the seasons change, it expands and contracts and you have stripes in those areas. Yes. <coughs> I will counter with this question, Austin. We do not do vinyl siding. We'll do small little bits. Like if somebody has some vinyl shakes over the garage, we'll get up there and we'll do them. But we have stopped painting vinyl sided houses because of that. Number one, when we wash them, those um, houses, uh, they hold a lot of dirt and stuff behind there. So a house can be relatively clean. We can wash it. It'll weaponize all that dirt and, and like stuff behind it. And it'll actually start running down the siding. And then it takes 10 times more washing. It expands and contracts like crazy. You can hear vinyl siding move on a hot day in the sun. And it, and it will do that. Then you run into the whole problem of what will stick to it. You have a limited amount of colors. Like I use Sherwin-Williams vinyl safe colors when we do that. And the, the old, the old, um, um, the old problem with vinyl siding is that if you take Sherwin-Williams tricorn black in duration, a non vinyl safe color and spray it on that siding, that black will absorb a lot of heat from the sun and actually buckle and melt that siding. So you have to select from a certain number of uh, colors. You have to make sure it adheres. Stuff moves and, and expands and contracts. So I will say 
you know, your question is how do you get behind that stuff? And I will say, do you even want to do vinyl siding? It's a lot of risk there. And if you can charge for it appropriately and make up for that risk, do it. If not, you just have to catch it on a cold day when it's all contracted and there's really no other way around that stuff. So, uh, let's see, Jamie Ness, will this be on YouTube for young workers who aren't on Facebook? Yes, absolutely. This is archived forever and ever, Jamie, fellow Minnesota painter on uh, Facebook, on Instagram, and on YouTube as well, too. So, ah, here we go. How do you factor in your time budget on your exteriors? Is it your uh, is it your total materials divided by 60? All right. So this is how we do budgets for every single job that we do. We take revenue minus 15% because we're estimating materials. So if we had a $1,000 job, we would take off $150 worth of materials. That would leave us with $850 of revenue. I divide that by hypothetically the number, the dollar amount per hour I would like to make. So 60, 65, 75, 80, whatever. And that'll tell you how many hours that project has to be done in, in order to generate that much revenue per project. So pretty straightforward, Travis. Love, love, uh, love interacting with you. And I have your mug in my kitchen. Dave Pine. Oh man, Dave Pine. How's it going? Morning, Nick. Slightly off topic. Super excited that my wife just joined the family business working in admin. Wow. Wondering if you've ever done a show about back office. I certainly can. That's actually a really good. Um, that's actually a really good show topic. Uh, we've had a coordinator, uh, an admin for about a year, and it's kind of an evolving role. It's a really cool thing. So, uh, yeah, that's actually a really good. Um, that's a really good topic. And I, I will tell you how I built my admin role. Um, we, we, we were doing. I mean, we had 20 or 30, maybe even 35 people in the company before we even had an admin. I was just doing that role forever because our, our processes are so simple. I was able to keep up with it. Uh, but now that we have a professional admin, uh, Lindsay, uh, she is a killer. Uh, Carly was our first uh, professional coordinator and she helped me develop the role. She was kind of, uh, she's got an entrepreneurial mindset and we just problem solved. We, we crafted the role to get stuff done. And then she actually moved into a project management role and she's excelling at that. But then Lindsay, we got a professional coordinator to take the processes that Carly and I created and then function in them and 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 work them. And she's actually doing a little problem solving with me too, which is awesome as well too. So um, yeah, um, basically the idea of where our coordinator position came from was we take parts of my job, parts of our estimator's job, parts of our project management team jobs. We carved out all the things that can be done kind of office-y and gave it to that person so that we can free up project management estimator and me to do other things. And we're kind of all working as a team. Since we've had a coordinator, I will tell you this, it's not just doing some stuff that we did. We have the most insanely robust new set of data over the last year based on this. Um, I'll share it with you guys. It'd actually be a really cool thing. We share it every Monday at our leadership team meeting. And uh, that is actually Dave Pine, a great, uh, great idea for a show. And uh, I, I have a whole bunch of like mastering the basics, coatings, brushes, stains, processes, shows coming up here. Uh, very, very tightly planned shows with underwriters. But the second we have a free show, that's actually a really good idea here. So Travis, how's it going, man? All right. So exactly how <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Nick. That's exactly how I've been doing it. I have job costed everything. It is eye opening. It is eye opening. Uh, Travis, one of the coolest things that I've ever done is a when we did mini master's classes right here in the war room, I invited painters from all over the country to bring completed jobs. And we job costed them. And it was really eye-opening about how little money some people were making on jobs when they thought they were making much more because it was a happy client and it was a good finish and they felt great. But really, they're making 17 bucks an hour on a job, which, you know, you can't run a professional business off that. So job costing is the key and it's the way. So, all right, everybody. 
This is my standard operating procedure, which we went through every single line on this thing. If you want it, nick at nickslavic.com. Also, PBN, Paint by Numbers, Workshop, Lab, with Jason Paris, with all his partners, with me, with everybody you know and love from the industry, is coming up in a couple of weeks in Minnesota. There's a link in the show notes here. Also, if you want to visit me on a master's class, I have a link for all of those things. We have a link for the um, we have a link for all of uh, uh, my retreat coming up in August as well too. The Ask a Painter Live retreat. You have to fill out an application to be accepted. Uh, yeah. Other than that, uh, go to the PCA's website for all those events. Join, become a member, hang out with guys like me and Jason at all these events. And uh, yeah, thank you to Sherwin Williams for an awesome show. I appreciate them underwriting this. Uh, Sherwin Williams is literally the backbone of of my company. 90% of all of our codings come through them. And we have a beautiful system with store managers, with reps, and they are a huge uh, partner to my business. And I do appreciate them for trusting me with this sort of show and things like that. So, all right, final question, then we're out of here. Fred Emery, what's your SOP with moisture? How long to wait after pressure washing to start caulking or painting? What's your policy on days with potential end or uh, precipitation? How long do you leave as a buffer? Ah, you do not have to guess at this, Mr. Emery. Uh, digital moisture meter, 15% or less, you're good to go and paint. That's how we do it. So that's an easy answer. That is a data-based answer. That's awesome. All the coding uh, manufacturers, their technical data sheets say that. So, all right. Thank you guys so much. Have a good weekend. I'm going to punch out for some family time. Uh, I appreciate you all very much and uh, have a good weekend. Stop Instagram and we'll stop Facebook. All right, everybody. Have a good weekend. Paint Ed podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and is made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPaintEd.org.